Well, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 2, and John chapter 2, and what, um, what I want to introduce to you tonight um, will be, it stands alone, but over the course of the rest of the summer, and we're going to include September as summer, um, I want to do a series of, of, of messages, sort of like what we did with the Maskell Psalms um, last year, um, and I'm going to call this Meditations. So just meditations from the Word. So I have asked uh, different brothers uh, to take every Wednesday night that is not um, either a business meeting or a prayer meeting, every Wednesday night between now and the end of September, to just bring to the congregation meditations that they have been having from the Word of God. So it'll, it'll be, there will be, you know, stand-alone, uh, one-offs. Um, and I think, that's, uh, I think it'll be good. Um, both for the brethren who will be you know, meditating and ready to, to, to speak, but also I'm hoping that it will just spur your, our own hearts to practice meditating in the Word, to practice the, the, the grace of just chewing on, on the Word of God. Um, what a... Um, it is sanctified under that truth, the Word is truth. And so is God is setting us apart. The main thing that he uses to set apart uh, those who are regenerated is his words, his revelation, the word of God, which is uh, profitable for all good things. And so be praying about that. I'm looking forward to it. So tonight I'm going to start. I'm just going to share some meditations that I have had this week. And I'm going to read from John chapter 2. Um, I have the added benefit of, I can finish this later, I'm <laughs> choosing, so, um, and I'm going to, so Lord willing, I'm going to try to finish this, these meditations, during our communion service here in a, in a few weeks. But John chapter 2, um, we're just going to be just above where uh, Brother Thomas was um, on Sunday night. And actually, these meditations were spurred by my just, uh, had to keep, maybe read this passage, or maybe my eye just caught something in the passage of, above as he was reading, and I was playing that game the rest of the service, paying attention, but also my mind was trying to run some, run some, uh, some, some, some paths in the Word that just were stirred by reading the Word of God. And so let me start reading in John chapter 2, um, verse 12. And I'll read down through uh, what Brother Thomas read the other night. John 2, verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother, and his brethren, and his disciples. And they continued there not many days, just a few days in Capernaum. And the Jews' Passover was in, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and found in the temple those that loves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple and building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. 
When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Uh, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. And so uh, I, I want to talk to you about meditations on scourging tonight. That sounds strange. What a, what, a, what a morose topic. But that's the thing that jumped in my mind. And I'll just tell you what, what entered my mind um, at, this, at this point. Um, and, and we'll look at just a, one small part of this. So I'm thinking as, as we were listening to Brother Thomas preach the other night, Jesus has a scourge in his hands. Um, and the Bible gives a lot of attention to scourging. And just three things that came to my mind at, at the moment. Jesus has a scourge in his hand and he's driving people out in this violent uh, display of his authority. And then later, uh, the scourge will be taken from his hand and it will be turned on him. Right? So later, the scourge will be turned on Jesus. Um, and then I was thinking about what the, what the scourge in the hand of the Father is to those in the Father loves. And so there's some glorious thoughts in all that. Um, Jesus here, we're going to see in a minute, Jesus is scourging because Jesus is intent on cleansing the temple. Um, the scourge is taken from him because the Jews who are delivering to the Romans are intent on cleansing the temple from Jesus, right? Jesus is the blasphemer. He is the, he is the one who threatens the, 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 the uh, sanctity of the temple. And so he is being scourged by the Romans via the Jews to cleanse the temple, and yet in reality, in God's hand, um, Jesus being scourged is actually and really and totally and finally cleansing the temple. That will be our communion service in a few weeks, Lord willing. It's a beautiful, beautiful truth. And then the, the scourge in the hand of the Father towards His children, Hebrews 12, is intended for love. And so, just thinking about the scourge. Um, now, this, this setting is, is, is very, very interesting in that this is sort of... Um, at least in the book of John, this is the introduction of the glory of Jesus. So John is declaring the, the glory of Jesus. Um, he is the one who was in the beginning with the Father. He is the one who spake all things into existence. He is the one whom, um, who, who comes. And Moses had the law, but Jesus comes and He's filled with grace. He's filled with grace and what? And truth. So he's the, he's the perfect glory and word or expression of the Father in that He joins grace and truth together. And in doing that, we see this Lamb of God, John says, we have the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. He's going to take away through, through redemption, through grace. He's going to take away through, through justice, through, through judgment that will be placed upon His own back. And so immediately in the... In the public ministry of Jesus, in this first of the miracles that is done just before this, we see in these two stories joined, here is the one who is filled with grace and truth. Okay, so the first part of John 2 is, it says in verse um, 10, no, verse, verse 11, verse 11, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth His glory. So we're going to see the glory of Jesus manifested in the first part of John 2 
through this, this, this unnecessary kindness, this grace that He gives. And of course, I'm referring to the first miracle He did, which was turning the water into wine. Here are people who are they're, they're embarrassed um, because of their lack. Uh, they, they have already uh, put forth the good wine. There's still more guests. And Jesus comes with this unnecessary, this undeserved, this, this overflowing, abounding kindness. He says, bring the, bring the pots to me and fill them with water. And then He turns them into wine and they are amazed. The, the good man of the house is amazed because this wine was far superior to the wine that he had, he had originally bought. This is a better wine. It's a wine that fills his heart with gladness and satisfies the needs of his guests. And they're all so impressed and amazed at the quality of the wine that is produced at this wedding. And this is just the grace of Jesus, right? This is Jesus who, who causes us to abound with his um, love and abound with overflowing goodness to us. And we see his glory. And that's going to be displayed again and again and again and again through healing those who are lame and sick. And we sang about the, the, the woman at the well tonight who, who finds this, this kindness in this man who knows everything she ever did. And that's, that's petrifying to her that this man has exposed her, but then she finds out that he is good and that he's kind and he... And she goes and tells, I can show you a man who told me everything, who knows everything about me and has told me everything that I've ever done. So she goes from shame to peace in the presence of the grace of Jesus and joins right to that. And by the way, not, um, not divorce from that. It's not grace and truth are opposing forces. Understand that. Grace and truth come together. Grace and truth are, 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 are part of the... Um, it's not grace at the expense of truth and truth at the expense of grace and they're enemies. They're not enemies. I mean, they're enemies for us, right? Because, I mean, in, in some terms, in that truth is a, is a real barrier to us because we're guilty. We're condemned. But, 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 it's, but we understand that the law is good. Um, and we understand that God is good. So truth and grace are not, are not opposers. Truth and grace are displays. It's a... It's a it's a blessing. It's a grace of God to bring truth, isn't it? Um, to expose error, to spo- expose lies. The truth of Jesus Christ is the glory of Christ displayed as well. And so then in this second scene, right after that, you go to Capernaum for a few days, and then right after that, this second big display is of the truth of Jesus Christ as He comes into the temple and He's scourging those who are in the temple. So let's think about the scourge just for a few minutes and then we'll come back and look at, at this, this scene of Jesus scourging the temple and try to understand it. So the scourge, there's really two scourges in the Bible. One is the Jewish scourge and the other one is the Roman scourge. Okay, So the Jewish scourge was, children, it was just, um, the Bible doesn't describe this, but we understand from history this is what it looked like. Jesus made one here. It was just a handle with, with usually three, uh, three strands of, of leather. Um, the historians say it was one of ox's leather and two of ass's leather. I don't know why. I don't know if that's true or not. And, and there's probably some differentiation between the thickness and the, the firmness of an ox and that of, a, that, that of an ass. I don't know. But it, it, it hurt, and it was meant to hurt. Okay? And so, um, and, and usually, in, in, in the dispensing of the scourge, there was, they would take the, the person's shirt off, and there would be 13 stripes across the bare chest, and then 13 stripes each across each shoulder. 
But, but more importantly, we can see um, from Deuteronomy 25 what the whole idea of the scourge was. So turn to Deuteronomy 25 and to understand well, what is this scourging all about in the Old Testament and in the Jewish uh, tradition and, and learning. So I'm going to read the first three verses of Deuteronomy 25. If there be a controversy between men, and they come unto judgment, that the judges may judge them, then they shall... There's all kinds of gospel language here, by the way. We'll get to you later. Then they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Just let that go in your mind for a minute. This is what's going to happen at the cross, right? Um, The righteous are going to be justified at the cross in a way... In a broad sense, God will be vindicated, but also we are a part of the righteous there. It's amazing. This is 2 Corinthians 5. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Okay, I'm going to move away from the whole gospel thing right now because we're going to get back to this, this right here. But just keep that in your mind, okay? Um, they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. How shall they do it? And it shall be, if the wicked man be worthy to be beaten, that the judge shall cause him to lie down to be beaten before his face, so he's, he's up, up exposed the, the, the chest and the shoulders, um, according to his fault, by a certain number. Forty stripes he may give him and not exceed, lest if he should exceed and beat him above these with many stripes, then thy brother should seem vile unto thee. So just, I'm going to give you seven things that we can learn about the scourge and what the purpose of the scourge was from, from this text. So the first thing is authority. Okay? There are two guys. And there are other laws and other penalties for committing of crimes and, and, and sin, in, as you know, in the Old Testament. There were some that were capital punishment. But this is just two people who are, who are locked in a, in a controversy. You, you, you know, imagine the controversy. And, and, and they cannot come to, to uh, an understanding on it. Um, there's been an offense committed, and there's a denial of an offense. And they, and they just cannot come together on the offense and so these two people are brought before the judge. In other words, there's the idea that someone can stop this whole dispute. Someone can speak and speak authoritatively to this problem. Someone can speak to the matter. So that idea is ingrained into this giving a scourge. You can't just go scourge somebody, right? You can't just build you a whip and start beating, beating your neighbors. Somebody had to give the authority to it. There's someone who's speaking with authority. This is the righteous judgment. That's the second thing that we learned. There is judgment that is made. In this, and in this judgment, the righteous should be justified. They should figure out who's, who's right in the matter. The righteous should be justified, as publicly stated. And then the wickedness should be condemned. Okay? So the idea is wicked righteousness should be trumpeted. Righteousness should be honored. And wickedness should be condemned. Wrong should be uh, made known. Wickedness should be punished. Now, here's, here's the next thing. This is, this is not a private declaration. This is, there's, a, there's a community message here as well. So in other words, when you, when you are having this dispute and, and, and it's being judged, I'm looking at Jonathan right now, maybe Jonathan and Joel were in a dispute. It's not, Jonathan, you're guilty, go to your room, and I'm going to give you a spanking in your room. No, this was a public thing. So, in other words, 
Jonathan, we've got to go out to the town square. <laughs> and we've got to have this scourging in the town square because, yes, you are being punished, but there's also a wider message being said to all those in the community that all those may understand there's righteousness and there's wickedness. There is justification and there is punishment. And there has an effect upon that, right? So that next time that, that uh, Joshua and Isaiah are in dispute, they might say, you know what, it's just not worth it. I, I'm not, it's not that big of a deal. I forgive you or you know, whatever it is because I remember what happened to Jonathan. And I don't want to go to the town square to be scourged. So there's a community uh, effect here in the scourging or a broader effect to the public in the scourging. Uh, here's, the, here's the fourth thing. It's limited. It's limited. In other words, it's just. The, the, the punishment fits the crime. He says you can, you can give these scourges uh, according to the offense, and you know God knew, and they, they came up with some, some rules for that. Um, and you may, you may recognize this. He said, but it can't exceed 40. And, and 40 is not a magic number. But he said, you can't do it to where the person becomes vile to you. You're not doing it just to, just to humiliate the person. There's, there's a goal here. It's, it's to appropriately deal with the offense and drive the wickedness away from the person and drive the wickedness away from the community and, and, and give a fit punishment for the crime. But we're not trying to, 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 uh, to humiliate and to torture and to, to um, 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 make this person seem vile to you. So the punishment fits the crime. And so, of course, you recognize this. The Jews, by tradition then, they would always set the number at 39 um, because they wanted to make sure they didn't break the law in their, in their uh, dealing of, of punishment and go over 40. 40 was the limit. They didn't go over 40, so it was always up at 39. You may remember, you may remember that, that Paul says he, five times he was beaten with 39 stripes. And by the way, by the way, just, just remember this. We won't get to that tonight, but... but um, but but the scourge in the hands of wrong of the wrong people is is um, is what we see in our world today. Really, they're trying to drive up, drive away righteousness. But but that's what we saw in Christ's day as well. So what happened to Christ? The scourge in the hands of the wrong people. When there's judgment that's not being done, this is why Paul was scourged five times because he went to the synagogue and says, "Let me tell you about Jesus." And, and, and their hatred of Christ, instead of receiving the truth of Christ, they in turn turned the scourge on the Paul, 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 Paul. He talks about Peter and the other apostles preaching the word in the synagogue and the Jews, the authorities, those who were supposed to be executing righteousness and condemning wickedness. They in turn instead beat them and commanded them to no longer say the name of Jesus. But but the fifth thing, and this is this is the most this is the most vital thing, is what was the scourging intended to do? Yes, it was a community message, but the fifth thing it, it was it was turned towards the individual, right? It, it's it's punishing the wickedness in the individual that the individual might be that the guilty that the guilty might be punished and that they might turn from their wickedness. That was the goal. It was to change behavior and to condemn wickedness that they might turn from their wickedness. It was meant to, in other words, the whole goal of the scourging was cleansing. That sounds strange, doesn't it? I know every child in the room says, I don't understand why spankings are good. Right? They're not good. They hurt. But, but the, the goal of the scourging is the same as the goal of, of chastising the chastising rod is to, is to, to cause us, to, to, to provoke us to 
turn away in our minds from wickedness, from evil. So it's a cleansing. It's a cleansing goal here. So therefore, here's, here's the next thing about the scourging. The scourging is in love. It's an act of love. It's an act of love for the, for the society, right? It was, it was, it was meant, all God's, all God's laws for his people were in love. They're all for the good of society. They're good for the righteous, right? The righteous man says, okay, now I have this problem anymore. The judgment's been made. He's been beaten. I don't have any grudges against him. It's over. It's good for the, for the, for the condemned, for the wicked, to, to drive it away. It's done in love. Scourging was done in love. But here's the last thing. And this is the thing that should stand out. Scourging is external. It's external. What does it hit? It hits the chest. It hits the, the shoulders. What does it not hit necessarily? It doesn't necessarily go down to the mind or to the heart. Have you ever been disciplined? We all have been disciplined. Has it always done its, done its job? No. No. You might change the behavior for a moment. You might change the behavior for a day, maybe for a week. And in God's good grace, perhaps there's been some discipline you've received by the hands of your parent or whatever that really grabbed your attention and turned your and all of us have had a few of those moments where, where grace and truth met at the same time and and a few of those moments where grace and truth met at the same time and not only was the discipline in, in, uh, dispensed but also the hearts came together and there was a real turn a real moment of of meeting between heaven and earth and parent and child and and, and long term change occurred but that's not always the case is it in fact you might say it's not often the case. It might be a turn of behavior, but the, you see the, the heart attitude is still there. It's only external. Well, the Roman scourge was different. The Roman scourge was different in, in, its, in its form. Um, it, it was also a, a handle with, with, with some leather uh, throngs. But it was, those, those were, they had, as you know, they had metal or sharp objects embedded or threaded into uh, the leather. So, so there's nothing about love in these things. Um, the, the, the Roman scourge was all about torture. But it was. It was about torture. It, it, it was meant to inflict the most pain possible in the shortest amount of time. It, it was designed to rip away the flesh as, as quickly as possible and to expose... The, um, the you know the underbelly the the, the muscle and the and if you might remember um, Jesus says um, in Psalm I think it's twenty two verse seventeen he says I, I can tell all my bones in other words, I can see my bones because my bones have been exposed by the scourge of the Roman it's meant to, to to cause excessive bleeding there was there was no legal limit to the blows none so usually how the blows stopped if they stopped was they stop with a call of the centurion and say, he's almost dead. Stop, but not in relief. Stop and now nail him to the cross, right? So it was, it was something that was just, it was just torture. Uh, Josephus says it was the most pitiable of deaths. Cicero says it was the extreme and ultimate punishment of slaves. He says it was the cruelest and most disgusting penalty. Now again, let your mind run to the cross of Jesus Christ a little bit. As Christ in the hands of those Romans um, was crucified, was scourged, was crucified and slain. And by the way, in your meditations, just, just you might 
just grab Isaiah 53. Um, Isaiah 53 is filled with scourge language. He was, he was stricken and smitten um, um, by his stripes. It's all this scourge language filled. And, and in fact, it describes him in Isaiah 52 verse 14. And I'm struggling not to run there. We'll get there in a few weeks. But it says his, his visage was so marred more than any man. His form more than the sons of men. But the next verse says this. I'm going to on this. It says, basically it's my language, kings gawked at him. But they weren't gawking at his mutilated form as much as they were gawking at what he accomplished on the cross. Isn't that amazing? That, that, that by his offering, he was... Let me just find it very quickly. I won't mess it up. Isaiah 52... Isaiah 52, verse 15. As, uh, as many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, his former than the sons of men, so shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. So as opposed to an open mouth, God, they're just, they're just silent. They're just stunned. For that which had not been told them shall they see. And that which they had not heard shall they consider. But they, they had thought he's just a man, right? Just a man, and he's, there's nothing to view about him. But then they see, oh my word. This man is a man unlike any other man. This man has accomplished redemption for his people. Here's another meditation if you want from Isaiah 53. Um, the, the, the pleasure of his... Um, how's it go? The pleasure of his... I shouldn't have turned from there. Um, oh, let me just turn there very quickly. This is a great one. This is speaking of the Father. This is the good news for sinners. Um, yes, that's it. The pleasure, this, just write this down and, and chew on it. The pleasure of the Lord, or those, the will of the Lord, shall prosper in His hand. So whatever God desires, whatever the, 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 the purposes of God, prosper in when put into the hands of Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? The pleasure of the Lord prospers in the hand of His Son, the Lord Jesus. Well, let's turn it back to John 2 just for a couple of minutes and just look at what's happening here. This is a, this is a shocking scene, especially shocking if you think of Jesus as being meek and lowly in heart. It's shocking if you think about it happening right after he's just sort of the he's he's the hero of the of the of the wedding feast, right? I mean, he's, here's a guy who can turn your water into wine and make you uh, make you happy, um, and then in this very next thing, he walks to this feast time when the Jews are celebrating God's goodness to them and the Passover and the destruction of the enemy Egyptians. And so God's always about his always for his people. He's with his people. He's Protects his people, and Jesus walks into the scene, and Jesus, as it were, just goes berserk. And it's very, very violent scene. He sees it, and immediately he turns and he goes and makes a whip. He makes a scourge. And he takes that scourge and he, 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 he runs into the temple and he just starts swinging the scourge. Imagine this scene. Here's this guy. Nobody knows who he is. Maybe his fame is starting to spread, but not to that great degree. And this man, this man, this wild man is, is driving by wild. I just mean he is, 
He is with authority. He's driving people out of the temple. And it's not enough to just take their stuff and throw it out in the bags. But he takes the bags of money and he just turns them over and just dumps them on the ground. He overturns the money changers. It says he pours out the changers' money and overthrows the tables. Just Again, I can't describe it well tonight, but just let your mind run to a scene like that. It would, be, it would be terrifying to any of us. There would be shouts and screams and uh, protests and insults being hollered and mass confusion and, and chaos. And yet Jesus, as it were, is saying, this is better. Uh, not to mention the animals that are, that are pulling away from the leash of their masters. The masters are trying to find their animals that they have brought here to make good money on. It's mass chaos and mass confusion. And it's, it's as if Jesus is saying, I would rather see mass chaos in here than see what's happening in this, in this temple. And you go, what in the world is going on here? Well, I'll tell you, it's exactly, it's exactly what the same thing is happening in Deuteronomy 20, 20, 25. Very quickly, Jesus is establishing His authority, isn't He? This is my temple. This is my Father's temple. This is a temple that is holy. And there is a problem here. And nobody's speaking up. But I am. You see, he's announcing, I am the one who is equipped and authorized to speak with authority about God and about God's temple. Jesus is making a very clear judgment. He is, he is condemning wickedness here, isn't He? He is making not just a private display. He's making a display to all of mankind. All of those people here. This is a community event. There is wickedness. And wickedness must be driven out. There is righteousness. And righteousness must be declared again. And Jesus, of course, is cleansing. You think, well, where's the, where's, the, where's the loving Jesus? This is the most loving thing Jesus can do. Now, you understand what's happening here is that, that, that the, the people would come from far and near to the temple to, at the Passover time to offer their offerings before the Lord. And there are opportunists here who would know they were coming, know they couldn't bring animals from so far, so they would exchange money for Roman money and, of course, put a little extra on top of that to, to fill their coffers, maybe a lot extra on top of that. And they would sell animals and do all kinds of chicanery and selling the animals, sometimes selling, uh, the, the, sometimes the priest would be involved with this, and the priest would find some blight on an animal, say, no, you got to buy this animal that's already here, it just happens to cost, it's been, inflation's happening right now, the, the priest is taking it a little bit under, under the table from the seller, and a big business is happening, it's just a corrupt thing, terribly corrupt thing. So Jesus, in love, for the Father, in love for those who are being oppressed, in love for truth, in love for righteousness, in love for true worship. Jesus is cleansing the temple. This is the place where God's glory dwelt. This is the place where sinful man meets holy God and finds that God will meet him at the mercy seat. But this is not a place where man will come in in the way that man is and offer his own polluted works before God. So, let me just, just share a few things in closing that Jesus is doing here. All those things we said in Deuteronomy 25, but a few more things. The psalmist helps us understand this. Psalm 69, in fact, it's quoted here in John 2. In John 2, verse um, 17 
his disciples, when when his disciples see him doing this, they remember Psalm 69. They remember that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Let me turn to Psalm 69 for a moment. You'll see a few things from Psalm 69. This is found in verse 9. This whole whole psalm is a prophecy of Christ, a messianic psalm. But Psalm 69, speaking of Jesus, it says, For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproached thee are fallen upon me. This is what the disciples remember. When they see Jesus swinging His, his whip, and, 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 and not just in, in vain, but hitting people, and driving them out, and turning over the money, and throwing over tables, they remember Psalm 69, this is the Messiah, and it said of the Messiah, Jesus, that the zeal for God, the zeal for the house of God has eaten Him up, has swallowed Him, has consumed Him. Jesus' love for God and for holy things and for God's ways and for God's glory completely swallows Him up, completely consumes Him. So just know this. Know this about Jesus. He is absolutely meek and lowly in heart. But know this, Jesus' zeal for His Father, Jesus' zeal for the glory of God, it consumes every fiber of Jesus' being. By the way, that's why, that's why He'll go to the cross voluntarily. Because He is consumed with a zeal for God. Secondly, He, he takes... God's and, and this is by the way we're to walk in the steps right he takes Jesus takes God's glory personally listen to this the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me he's saying God you're defiling they're defiling you but as they're defiling you it's as if they're defiling me now of course they were he's a God man right he's a God man when, as they reproach you, it's like they're reproaching me. The reproaches of you are falling upon me. This is an example to us, friends. We should never, ever, ever, we're one with Christ, never be comfortable with the reproaches of God. The reproaches of God should swallow us up. It should cause us to be like, to, to, to be as if we ourselves are being personally reproached when God's name is reproached. Now, that's, that's true of our individual lives. It's easy to say, yeah, I hate it when those liberals do that. But what about when I am living in a way that's reproaching the name of God? It's meant to just, it's, it's as if I'm reproaching myself. Okay? He's that personal about it. Now, the third thing in this passage is this. There, there's a hint, there's a promise of the substitutionary atonement here, isn't there? The reproaches of them that reproach thee, what? Are fallen upon me. This is what happens at Calvary, brothers and sisters. We quoted it earlier. For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin. So the thief on the cross who is at one moment hurling 
insults at the Savior, the reproach, the scourge that should fall on the thief instead falls upon Jesus. That's substitutionary atonement. That is the doctrine of imputation. That is justification. That is your hope. If you have a hope in Jesus Christ, it's because the zeal of God has eaten him up so much that it was a Father's will that he would take the reproach that you deserve. That's why, brothers and sisters, we should be so zealous for God, right? Out of thanksgiving, out of love. And then there's one more thought here, and this is the thought that Paul gets out of this passage. Romans 15. Romans 15. You see, what happens, brothers and sisters, when we are brought to know just how great the love of God for us in Jesus Christ is, it causes us to what? To love God, but it also, should, it also causes us to have love, period. Love is absent from those who don't know God, but those who've experienced the love of God in Christ, the reproach that I gave fell on Christ. Are you kidding me? Oh, what a great God. I love Him. And it causes us to love one another. Jesus says, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, because I have love one another. And so Paul takes this very same passage and says this in Romans 15. The, the context is chapter 14 of a dispute about eating. Can we eat food offered to idols or not eat food offered to idols? And the, the, the more spiritual mind say, no, yes, we can eat the food. The other ones say, no, we can't eat the food. They're all disputing. They're hating each other. And here's what Paul says. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. So your first goal in interaction with whoever, your church members, your wife, your husband... Your first goal, if you know Christ, must not be, what do I want? Wow. But my first thought is, I want to bear the infirmities of the weak. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself. As it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. Isn't that something? Christ, instead of pleasing himself, instead of getting himself out of the sticky situation, Christ said, I will take the reproach. I will take the curse of God. I will take the wrath of God on myself because Christ was not thinking of his own skin, but Christ was thinking of those whom the Father had given him. And so Christ did not please Himself. He willingly took on the cross. The reproach of them that reproached Him fell on Christ because of Christ's great love for you. And Paul is saying, you must live that out. You must live that out in how you relate to one another. You must live that out in how you behave in the house of God because this is what Jesus did. Jesus did not seek to please Himself. Jesus sought to please others. So that's what's happening in John chapter 2. The zeal of the house of God is eating Christ up. It's as if he's taking it personally. And he's driving it out. But here's the last thing. Here's the last thing about the scene. It's all external. Right? It's all external. 
Did Jesus' scourge actually cleanse the temple? Well, maybe for a moment, but not for long. In fact, this same scene will happen again just a few years later, won't it? When Jesus is making His final entrance into Jerusalem, that He knows He's going for scourging and death, Matthew 20, Jesus enters Jerusalem triumphantly, praised, and immediately goes to the temple. And what does He find? It's exactly like it was back before. So Jesus once again, in this sort of this last final display of the zeal for God and the need for cleansing, He once again drives them out of the temple. Did they learn the lesson? Not at all. They learned the lesson. They immediately began to question Him. Showing that real cleansing must come in some other way. Real cleansing must be internal. And we can't do that, can we? So therefore, Jesus, of course, cleanses the temple through the scourging He receives at the hand of the Romans, which was actually at the hand of God, for your sakes, that you would be redeemed, not with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ, that you might actually receive the sprinkling of true cleansing, of true righteousness, of true justification. If John 2 hadn't happened, the Calvary wouldn't have happened. The reason that John 2 happened was because Jesus saw a defiled temple. He said, it must be cleansed. But it couldn't be cleansed externally. So he must therefore go to Calvary that he might fully and finally, as Brother Thomas preached the other night, cleanse the temple and create a, really a new temple. That's what he said. You're going to destroy this temple and I'm going to re- rebuild it in three days. And it's rebuilt new and different and whole. And brothers and sisters... This is why Romans 15 matters. You are the temple of God. You are a living stone. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a living stone built up together as a spiritual house. So Romans 15, the whole thing about burying the furniture of the weak and not pleasing ourselves is not just you know, good societal language. It is saying Jesus has Christ has cleansed you. So therefore you must live cleansed. May we have a zeal for God that Christ has.